This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. For the last 18 months, the Halikulani Hotel has been shuttered for renovations. It's now positioned to begin welcoming guests. As the governor has said, our hospital systems are no longer at a stress point with COVID cases, and he has put the welcome mat out. We talked to Peter Shanglin, the CEO of Halikulani, yesterday afternoon. The hotel very quietly opened its doors this month in a soft opening, but it's already seeing interest with strong bookings going into the holidays. Since the time of his initial announcement on August 23rd, the phones went silent and then they lit up with cancellations for the fourth quarter. And so with the situation it's left us is that October and November is the most challenging. And Christmas bookings are quite strong right now, the second half of December, which tells you that people are cautiously optimistic. And again, so I hope that with this announcement of his, this should really hopefully give new impetus to bookings as we head not only to the rest of the fourth quarter, but into the new year. So we're optimistic. We are looking to the return of our international travelers. Big question mark is what's going to happen with Japan. And and I know your clientele, a, a number of people come from the islands there to stay in Hawaii. Catherine, yeah, if we put Japan into perspective in relation to the United States vaccination rate, it's now recently surpassed. Um, the percentage of total population, respectively, for fully vaccinated individuals. So there's been tremendous ramp-up progress um, over the last two months or so, in particular uh, in Japan, with vaccinations. Um, That's all very much good upside potential news for us. Having said that, um, at the present time, one returning to Japan as a resident must still, as of this time, quarantine for 10 days. So there are very few people in a situation that can return after taking a vacation from work there that can then take another 10 days off when they get back. That's the current challenge. So we're hoping that with these numbers improving here again and in Japan, as far as the vaccination rate is concerned, that in the very near future, we might hear news of more activity from Japan. We are seeing, as of this week, slight uptick in the major Japan outbound air carriers in terms of their weekly flight numbers. They're increasing gradually. And we do know that Golden Week next year, which is April 29th to May 5th, 2022, is a period of optimized travel from Japan. So what we're optimistic is that the first quarter of next year will show a gradual steady ramp up from that country and perhaps peak during Golden Week into April and May next year. So, yeah, 2022 then is hopefully going to be a lot better than 2021 and certainly 2020. I think notwithstanding any new surprises in terms of potential COVID variants, that you've got it exactly right. This is a recovery year. Rather, I would say 2021 is a transition year into the recovery year of 2022. How has it been for Holly Kalani? Because you were able to use this downtime, if you will, to renovate we did. We were planning that major renovation to start very soon uh, upon when COVID struck. And we were faced with this dilemma of, you know, waiting and doing the renovation eventually after COVID left. But in hindsight, being 2020, I think we were right in our sense that COVID would be a very protracted experience, unfortunately. And so it allowed us to do necessary work to the hotel that was overdue for some time and now allows us to open with our most competitive product ever. Having said that, the secret to this success was not our investment in renovation. It was really the understanding and incredible support of our employees who looked to the long term as we asked them to and understood that it was going to be a very long period, as it has been for everyone here and around the world in terms of returning to work. But now with the doors having opened at Halakalani on October 1st and Halapuna, its sister hotel, uh, on uh, July 1st, previously, you know, we can now see the light at the end of the tunnel. And it's a period of cautious excitement for us right now. What percentage of your employees were you able to hire back? Well, we really work in terms of what we call FTEs or full-time equivalent staffing, because some employees are full-time and some are part-time. So we were able to bring back a good amount of our employees, but there are still a number of employees on furlough waiting to return when there's more business volume. So it is in ratio to occupancy, generally speaking. And right now, what we what we need is the products in place, the services in place. We simply need demand to increase. So with the factors we talked about before in terms of inbound travel, the numbers are rising. Again, I think we'll see soon that, that our trough was 
uh, September, October, November, and, and things are looking up. So day by day, we're bringing employees back in, and it's a long, arduous road, but we believe firmly that these decisions, as painful as they were, were in the interest of the long-term sustainability of the business itself. And what can you share with uh, with our listeners just as far as the restaurants? Because there are folks that may want to say hi to the Holly Kalani again after being closed for so long. So the restaurants right now are real key orchids by the sea. And then House Without a Key, out, outside and next door to that, along the ocean as well, are, are both open now. Um, we started again gradually with House Without a Key uh, with the entertainment at two nights a week. It's now up to its old original um, programming full at seven nights a week. Orchids is open for not only breakfast, lunch, dinner, seven days a week again, but also Sunday brunch, the famous brunch at Halaklani. And um, I was there Sunday and it was just so wonderful to see so many familiar faces from Honolulu and surroundings because it really takes local residents to make a a destination restaurant, not so much guests, ironically, who are only here once a year at best. So both of those are in full gear and we're looking now at the timing for reopening of Le Maire in the imminent future and Lures Lounge, our, our fabled jazz room as well. So step by step, things are coming back into action. And it's, it's really a, a very exciting time for the food and beverage program to see it reemerge. Okay, so if Kamaana families want to go and enjoy their coconut cake and uh, tea, <laughs> you're open we're, for business. We're ready and waiting. Okay. <laughs> Tell us more about the renovations. I mean, how much you know more has to be done to the property? Right. We're putting the finishing touches on the last of the guest rooms now. We're working from west to east in terms of the, the physical building structure. And the, the guest rooms are significantly enhanced. Uh, we work with a fabulous firm out of San Francisco called BAMO, B-A-M-O, who's done a wonderful job in preserving the legacy and, and the visual vocabulary of, of Halakalani, the brand DNA, as we call it, but at the same time re-energizing the rooms and bringing us into the future. And it's the same, it's the same as in particular emphasis in the restaurants, but it's also in House Without a Key. Um, we'll actually, in the next month or two, we'll be introducing an, a new outdoor bar at House Without a Key that faces Diamond Head in the sunset. So we're, we're uh, all really excited about that as well. So lots, lots of new features going on. We're working on a spa program that will take us into 2022 and 23, where we're, we'll be introducing in the future a new wellness component to our spa programming, which is significant. Suffice it to say, it will enter into its next chapter in terms of um, uh, therapeutic services. And for those of us who have enjoyed, uh, you know, evenings there under the Kiawe tree, and I I know we almost lost the tree, you know, uh, you know, due to the erosion of that area. So, you know, how are you dealing with all that? came down several years ago it was interesting because we thought my gosh it's been an icon there since 1886 or so um it's well over 100 years old and and what are we going to do we have an arborist who's worked with our grounds and and landscape for over 40 years yes steve advised us that the tree was still growing Mm -hmm. um so it stays where it is it remains the icon and and next couple of hours the hula dancers will appear again on a daily basis and continue to dance under the branches of the famous Kiave tree. So, so the legend, the legend continues. Okay, but have you had to do much uh, 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 shoring up of the seawall area down there? We did upgrades to the seawall area and all that land along the sea. We took the opportunity with the hotel being closed. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you go and you take a look at that landscape throughout the entire property, the entire landscape of the property is just completely re-energized as well. I think you'll see the same spirit and feeling in Halakalani, but more f- fresh and vibrant than ever before. And we also do have outside the main building, the historic building at Halakalani, the the William S. Merwin Garden, which was done in conjunction with our partnership with the Merwin Conservancy of Maui. Of course, William, the famous late poet laureate, poet laureate of the United yes. States and, and a pioneer in, um, in palm preservation. And that garden is there with his blessing in perpetuity. Um, and we work with his gardeners in his palm forest in Maui and uh, continue to feature rare, uh, threatened, endangered palm species there surrounding the old building at Halakalani. So we're really grateful for that opportunity to, to bring that to people's attention. Uh, William's concern mm-hmm. years ago when I was first walked with him in his palm forest was that he had saved so many species of palms from around the world that could become extinct, but that he was afraid that if the conservancy was struck with a storm or natural disaster that they'd all be uh, wiped out for good. And so he propagated seeds from and saplings from those and didn't know where to put them. And we said, we'd love to plant them at Halakalani. 
and then bring them to another island so there's more chance of their survival. That was Holly Kalani's Chief Executive Officer, Peter Shainlin. Looking forward to welcoming guests now that renovations at the iconic property and its sister hotel, Halipuna, are almost complete. The Holly Kalani has reset its fine arts collection on the grounds and has commissioned new work from Hawaii artists. The iconic hotel is one of the oldest properties in Waikiki. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. The 75th annual Aloha Festivals kicks off this week and we'll be reflecting on its history later in the show. It was started in 1946 as Aloha Week and commemorated with the Aloha Week Parade. One of the most unique and endearing parts of Hawaii's parades are the Pau Riders, the Wahine horseback riders who wear fancy decorated hats and long colorful skirts. Pau is the Hawaiian word for skirt and they continue Hawaii's equestrian routes that stretch back to 1803 when horses were first introduced. With our state's long and storied history of ranching, it's hard to imagine life here without horses. But just like Captain George Vancouver is credited with being the first to bring bovine to Hawaii, another seafarer is responsible for introducing the equine to the islands. So for today's Backyard Quiz, do you know the name of the man who brought the first horses to Hawaii? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. It is now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Reporter Christina Jedra joins us with the latest development on the Red Hill saga. Good morning, Christina. Morning. Good to be here. So this Red Hill story, yesterday was, uh, there was a deadline of sorts, right? Right. There was supposed to be a deadline. So to back up a little bit, um, the Red Hill fuel facility with the underground tanks that the Navy uses um, and, and the larger military uses um, for all kinds of things. Um, they're seeking a permit to keep going with the facility. They need to get that from the Department of Health. So there's been this contested case hearing where the Sierra Club of Hawaii and uh, the Board of Water Supply are contesting the permit, um, saying that the, the fuel tanks pose an existential threat to the island's drinking water. And so Wednesday was the deadline for the parties to send in their final materials um, to the Department of Health, and then the Department of Health Director, Libby Char, would make her decision on the permit. Now, there's been a one-month extension of that deadline um, in light of some new information that the Department of Health's um, Environmental um, uh, Health Administration received. Um, they said they, they received information and they're investigating allegations that the Navy didn't disclose the full extent of its pipeline system to them in their permit application and that um, additional information about their history of corrosion may not have been disclosed. Now, we don't have any further details on these allegations. Um, the Department of Health didn't say where these allegations are coming from, but they are stalling this permit process. And so basically then there's another, we've got another 30 days to figure out, will they reopen the hearing or make a decision? Right. 
that is the goal of the Environmental Health Administration, according to um, an email um, from the, the attorney that, that represents them. Um, they're hoping to reopen the hearings and hear new evidence and make sure that the director of health um, knows everything going on with this before she makes her decision on the permit. Um, it hasn't been determined yet whether the, the hearings will open back up, so we'll, we'll keep you updated on that. Yeah, and this is important uh, for the military because they've got these huge underground fuel storage tanks that supply all the airplanes and the ships that, uh, you know, come in to port. Right. For the military, there's a lot riding on this. Um, they say that this is a vital national security asset. Um, they This is what they rely on for a ton of fuel um, for ships and, and jets as well. So what does the Navy say about this? Um, well, they didn't comment on the, the new allegations. Um, however, I have been in talks with them about a separate issue, um, but perhaps related, it's unclear. Um, uh, earlier this week, a dozen state lawmakers are calling for uh, another investigation into whether the Navy misled regulators and the public earlier this year about a fuel release at Pearl Harbor. Um, this involves a pipeline that the Navy says is not connected to Red Hill. The Department of Health says it is connected to Red Hill. Um, so the, the legislators are saying we need to get to the bottom of that as well. Right. And we reported on, uh, uh, HPR's reported on the uh, uh, leaks over at Kilo and Hotel Pier. Uh, the question is, yeah, are these linked um, or not? Right, exactly. And the, the one that the legislators are asking about is the one at the hotel pier. It, um, the officials recovered about 7,700 gallons of fuel between March 2020 and July 2021. And Civil um, Beat, I have reported up on some emails and documents that I received from a Navy employee showing that Navy officials were concerned earlier this year about how um, the, the details of that leak might reflect on them at the, the time of the contested case hearing. Yeah, and it's interesting because we had asked for, uh, we had mentioned this before, an open records request to look at those reports, and we were denied because the military says, you know, national security interests. And, and I know the state is working right now to uh, somehow uh, get access to those records. So we'll just have to see what happens. Yep, we definitely have a lot of questions, um, and we hope to get answers soon. All right. Well, thanks so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community with a reimagination of its antiquity and the body gallery, featuring a new soundsuit sculpture by artist Nick Cave. HonoluluMuseum.org. HPR is seeking candidates for a multimedia producer to oversee production of on-air promos, live music events, and other content for broadcast and digital platforms. If you have experience in audio recording and production, if you're well-versed in audio capture and storage systems and have a love for public radio, we would love to hear from you. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org jobs. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from locations whose realtors have assisted home buyers and sellers across Oahu for more than 50 years. More information online at locationshawaii.com. Three decades ago, activists in Hawaii stepped onto the global stage to lead the conversation about same-sex marriage. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with Sasha Eisenberg, uh, author of The Engagement, America's Quarter-Century Struggle Over Same-Sex Marriage, to better understand this history and its impact on the LGBTQ rights today. Eisenberg uh, starts us off. So in May of 1993, the Hawaii Supreme Court became the first court anywhere on earth to rule that the fundamental right to marriage could extend to same-sex couples. And 
as a result of that, the first real political conflict over same-sex marriage took place in Hawaii in the 1990s. Nobody planned for this to be the sort of defining fight over LGBT rights over the last generation, but marriage emerged in large part because of what had happened in, in Hawaii as the terrain on which the sort of big culture war issues over the place of sexual minorities in, in American society, the sort of limitations on citizenship for gays and lesbians were played out. And that the the reason that that became a fight over marriage rights and not a fight over non-discrimination law or hate crimes protections or any of the other areas in which lesbians, gays, bisexual, transgender people have, have sought equal rights is because of a series of events that took place in Hawaii in the early 1990s that, you know, in which a very, very local personalized conflict spun wildly out of control. And within five years, what starts as a conflict within a local pride planning committee in, in Honolulu puts this issue of marriage on the desk of the president of the United States for the first time. So who gets the ball rolling? This guy named Bill Woods. Bill Woods was basically the gay rights activist in Honolulu during the 1970s and 1980s. He'd come to Hawaii from a small town in Illinois where he'd grown up. He'd come out and first lived as an openly gay man in Hawaii in the early 1970s. And he was, I think like many first generation activists in any sphere, incredibly entrepreneurial. So he started the Gay Community Center. He started Gay Community News. He started the first men's gay discussion group, the first gay radio program in, in, in Hawaii. Um, and I think like a lot of first generation activists in different spheres, he was not, he was very good at starting things and getting attention for his projects, not always great at, at working well with others or sort of building coalitions. Here's the story according to Eisenberg. Bill Woods wants to throw a parade for pride. And at the end of it, he wants to stage a huge wedding ceremony for same-sex couples. But he's not finding support from the Honolulu Pride Planning Committee. He asks the ACLU to back him up, but he doesn't get anywhere. So he ups the stakes. On December 17, 1990, he leads three couples into the Honolulu office of the Hawaii Department of Public Health to embark on this plan to request marriage licenses, which, which at that point is really, in his mind, no more than a PR stunt. He has plans to put out a press release, get media attention. And his theory is that the ACLU might be able to say no to him, but if there are real people who are being highlighted by the local media, it'll be very difficult for an organization that has proclaimed itself committed to defending the rights of gays and lesbians to say no to them. But they do. After the public health director denies the couple's request for marriage licenses and is backed up by the state attorney general, the ACLU still doesn't want to get involved. It seems like Woods has hit a dead end, until local civil rights attorney Dan Foley agrees to take up the case. He was basically the entirety of the civil rights bar in, in, in Honolulu at the time. Not a, not a gay man, but somebody who had done a few significant cases related to gay rights issues or LGBT issues and um, was incredibly sympathetic to, to their cause. And in May of 1991, Foley files this, by his own acknowledgement, long shot lawsuit to challenge the discrimination against these couples under the Hawaii Constitution. Two years later, in May of 1993, the Hawaii Supreme Court ruled in favor of the three couples and declared that Hawaii's prohibition of same-sex marriage violated the state constitution. That decision launched a national conversation, as well as prompted widespread backlash both in and outside of the islands. You can read all about it in Eisenberg's book, The Engagement. And at the core of the conversation was this one issue, marriage. The quest for marriage rights basically came out of nowhere. When this story starts in 1990, there's not a gay rights organization in the United States that has endorsed marriage equality as an objective. There is not an active court case. There hasn't been one for 15 years in the United States that's trying to secure marriage rights. There's barely a politician in the United States that's been asked his or her opinion on this. It is not an issue in any way. You know, gays and lesbians are fighting for sort of full citizenship on a, on a number of fronts. 
I could say it comes out of nowhere, but it comes out of a very local place in, in Hawaii. And, you know, five years later is before the president of the United States, a little over 20 years later is before the Supreme Court of the United States. And within 25 years of this, a few people fighting on a pride planning committee, the Supreme Court is, is making marriage equality the law of the land. And for many people, marriage equality is still the defining feature of the LGBTQ movement. But does that really capture the contemporary concerns of the community? I spoke with Ian Tapu, a UH Law School graduate who specialized in Native Hawaiian law. He's also on the board of directors for the Hawaii LGBT Legacy Foundation, which organizes Honolulu's Pride events. Hawaii has been at the forefront uh, of a lot of movements, especially when it comes to LGBT movements. And the first I think about is same-sex marriage. And, you know, we really had a very progressive judiciary. We have a very progressive community. Um, And I think it really helped to start the domino effect of realizing that gay marriage is something that everyone or just marriage in general is something that everyone should have the right to. Um, and I think what's really happening today is that we've kind of cultivated the leadership from our activists, you know, a decade, two decades ago, and we're implanting those same kind of movement processes in how we advocate for trans folks or mahu folks or advocating for adoption or foster care. So I, I think... The movement is very transferable. I feel like what has happened in the same-sex marriage arena has really um, catapulted us in ways that we're trying to affirm others, not just gay marriage. You know, Hawaii has the highest percentage population-wise of transgender individuals. And so I think really moving forward, I oftentimes people think of um, queer movements as only being about same-sex marriage, but there are so many other issues, um, and that includes advocacy in the health sphere, that includes advocacy for our youth, um, and that especially includes advocacy for our transgender folks. I think just from my role on the board for the foundation, for the Legacy Foundation, I, I find that sometimes groups operate in, in silos, and I feel like People are always having to reinvent the bridge to connect our groups together. And I'm, I'm not sure if that's because there's a generational gap. Oftentimes, movements come and go depending on who's leading it. And I think that's to say that those who, for example, advocated for gay marriage were transplants, which I think is separate from the group who's advocating for Mahu or the group who are advocating for homeless youth. I feel like there are sometimes disconnects which can, can get problematic because I think, you know, burnout is real. People are doing twice the work that they need to, not realizing that someone else is also doing similar work. Um, so I, I feel like so much of the legacy's role is making sure we connect folks to others who are doing similar work or who are just as passionate and want to be allies. Over the course of the year, the Legacy Foundation has held a series of town hall meetings to address the range of issues facing the LGBTQ community. And there's a meeting tonight at the Vivi Collective. The topic? How to build a movement. Queer community organizing. I asked Eisenberg what activists can learn from Hawaii's history with marriage equality as they seek to tackle other challenges. This is pretty instructive that we are not necessarily stuck with the issues that are before us now. Um, this was totally unimaginable as a political issue in the 1980s, that, that there'd be an active fight to change the laws of the country so that, that two men or two women could marry. Um, and in a very compressed period of time, it became a real thing that the political class had to deal with. And it was not initiated by politicians. It was not initiated by interest groups. It was not initiated by big donors or people that we think of as having the the ability to set the agenda in American politics now. It was local activists, real people. It introduced a whole new issue and ultimately one that that delivered a real expansion of of our idea of equality in the United States. And and I think that that is something that should should sort of give succor to people who are hoping to, to see change in this country. We're not stuck with the issues that are in front of us today. And if things go the right way five years, 10 years from now, we could be 
looking at a whole bunch of different policy choices if, if, if things go right. That was Savannah Harriman Pote speaking with Sasha Eisenberg, author of the book, The Engagement, America's Quarter Century Struggle Over the Same-Sex Marriage. She also spoke with Ian Tapu. Now, the Hawaii LGBT Legacy Foundation's town hall meeting is tonight at 6 p.m. For information on how to attend, visit hawaiipublicradio.org. This year marks the 75th anniversary of the Aloha Festivals. It began in 1946 as the Aloha Week Festival and has grown into what some call the largest Hawaiian cultural celebration in the U.S. HPR's arts and culture reporter Noe Tanigawa joins us to reflect on the history of the event. Good morning. Exactly. Good morning, Catherine. It was so fun to go back in time with Mommy <laughs> Casimero. Oh, nice. I mean, Mommy is, is this icon of style, really. She opened her business. Um, she's a designer. When there, being a designer was hardly a job that there that existed, you know, remember that time? <laughs> it was 1973 when she opened her place. And um, by the time she became Aloha Festival's um, director, 1990, I'm telling you, her style was, she, she designed everything for the 1990 festivals, and it was fantastic. So it was so good to talk with her because she's actually been deeply involved. She was recruited in the 80s and 90s by Bruce Kepler, whose mom, oh, yes. of course, right, was so involved. Well, Casimiro says the whole idea of Aloha Week originally got off the ground. I didn't know this. In the 1940s, was a project of the JC's Junior Chamber. And it wasn't like this big commercial thing that they were going for. The group called themselves the JC's Old Timers, and they got fired up behind one of their members, Harry Nordmark. Casimiro says Nordmark realized that Hawaii, 1940s, right after the war, we were in for some major changes. We came out of a war that condemned the Japanese, and here we are in Hawaii, the melting pot of all the people who live here. We eat each other's food, we celebrate each other's birthdays. So it was a time for him to focus on what he wanted to preserve, and the other members of the JC Old Timers were encouraged by this. Then they brought the women friends in. The women were the ones who created the festivities. Doris Kepler created the Ka'u Rider units. Janet Landgraf is the one who created the Royal Ball. And then we had people like Iolani Luahine and Drosna Ope on Hawaii Island. In its infancy, we have to recognize that was in 1947 that we're talking about. It was about celebrating who we were before the war and preserving what was special about our people, about our heritage, about our tradition. Mm, just going back and remembering what it must have been like then. Huh? Yeah, and the contributions of all those people. It takes know? an individual starting something, it turns out. Well, Casimiro says the royal court. Now we look at it, we don't know how to take it exactly, but she says that tradition is an enduring reference to the sovereign nation of Hawaii. And I have talked with members of the court over the years, and they say they feel it when they're standing there in the malo. And Casimiro says the originators also wanted to salute Hawaii's cosmopolitan heritage, and they just constantly concentrated people's energies in all these different ways, just working on the projects. I mean, have you ever reported on a low week, you know? Oh, yes. <laughs> right. Yes. But, you know, I had the opportunity also to participate uh, making the lay for the horses, and that was a oh. wonderful experience, you know, over at Waikiki Elementary. In oh, the exactly. Yeah, oh. you can't beat just really getting into it and learning exactly about that. flowers everywhere people mm. picking you know from trees in their yards and bring them yep, by the truckloads yep. who's got a truck who's got a fridge who's going to bring the you know this is what it's done i mean you can think what good is a dorky parade in the day of instant playback and slick graphics and stuff like that but it's what goes into it and the skill sets it requires those nights in the school cafetorium are, are bonding and they make people feel great all right 2019 aloha festivals don't forget they're going to be televised this time around so check it out. They're airing on KHON2, and the whole listing is right there at Aloha Festivals. So do you have any um, memories uh, of, you know, the Aloha Parade or any of those of traditions? Of course, yeah. <laughs> I love seeing the Pa'u Riders, and I love seeing those, um, like, company floats. I remember mm, one oh that, yes. a Molokai float. I mean, companies just go 
all out. And people would work on it, you know, day and night. And did they just have all these flowers? And I remember one that was a Paniolo-style one from Molokai one year that was <laughs> over the top. Yeah, no, I remember, I think, Hawaiian Airlines employees oh, uh, yeah. working. I think it was Aloha Tower where they all kind of, uh, you know, were... They uh, bu- mm-hmm. hunker down for the exactly. evening. Exactly. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, it's exciting. It's just to see, you know <laughs> to see the community come out and support this event. Look, people have not got to ask themselves, "Do I have time for this later?" You do. You do. It's going to come back. Yeah, and and it is nice because you know um, things are starting to, I guess, be mm-hmm. normal. So well, to speak. look, let me tell you. Last July, you know, last October, we had Halloween. We did the annual Honolulu Intertribal Powwow. We did the Waikiki Bazaar. We did the Honolulu Pride thing. We did Honolulu, uh, the Hawaii Food and Wine Fest. Maui, they had the 97th Maui Fair. We also had the Emilani Festival on Kauai, the Big Island Ube Fest. They had a tattoo festival in Kapa'au in Hawaii. Yeah, this was all happening October 2019. Mm. That was a little much. Yeah. You know, we have a chance now to start it all over again, start it the way we want, and do it the way we want to live. Right, and reflect on how it was started, why it was started, and appreciate it all the more. <laughs> that all helps. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Noe. Thanks. We have been talking to HBR's Noe Tanikawa. To hear more of her stories, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you if you knew who brought the first horses to Hawaii in 1803. Legend has it that King Kamehameha didn't care for them at first because of the amount of food they required. But as Native leaders began to understand the animals' usefulness, Hawaiian men and women quickly took to riding. And because most early Western visitors to Hawaii were men, Wahine learned to ride astride as opposed to side saddle. To protect their legs while riding, local women wore long skirts while traveling. Over time, as riders took part in performances and displays, their outfits became more elaborate and elegant. Today, we see gorgeously dressed women on horseback continue that tradition in the Aloha Festivals Parade and other events across our state. Something they wouldn't be able to do without Captain Richard J. Cleveland, who brought those horses. That was the answer to today's Backyard Quiz, and congrats to Philip you won. That, that is today's quiz. If you have one to share, uh, write to talk back, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Par Hawaii, an energy company extending aloha and mahalo to their employees and to all the people who are working to keep Hawaii's communities healthy. ParHawaii.com The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that make us a part of their communication strategy. Mahalo to the Cole Academy, Maui Chamber Orchestra, and Foodscapes Hawaii. They believe, just as you do in the power of public radio, see a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Films and network television series will continue shooting in our islands as the union for the production crews iron out the final details of a new uh, working agreement with Hollywood. Meanwhile, several locally produced films continue to find their way into the spotlight. The Hawaii International Film Festival will debut several of them next month. And one shot entirely on Maui, Aloha Surf Hotel, is now available through video on-demand services. It's a comedy written and directed by Stefan Schaefer. He grew up on the East Coast and in England. His previous films have won awards at several film festivals, and he moved to Maui with his wife and kids 12 years ago after his wife's mother, who had been living on the Valley Isle, passed away. The Conversations' Russell Subiono spoke with Schaefer about the growth of the film industry on Maui and the behind-the-scenes hilarity of his film. 
when you guys moved to Maui, did you have every intention of, of bringing your work in film with you? Or did you have plans to like commute back and forth to the continent? It was definitely a question mark. You know, I was part of the New York indie film scene. And part of that was sort of not selling out, quote unquote, to Hollywood. And, and so I didn't have an agent at the time when I was in New York. And I worked on many films there. And oddly, moving here is when I ended up getting representation in L.A. So when you moved to Maui, were you aware of the film scene in the state? If it was like 12 years ago, I think Lost was wrapping up. We might have had yep. a couple of films. I think 5.0 was maybe a year or two still away. What was your impression of the film scene when you when you moved here? Well, I wasn't, I mean, certainly on Maui, there wasn't a lot going on. And I had heard actually through my lawyer about Act 221, which is this really favorable tax scheme. And I was in contact with Island Film Group and Talk Story a little bit about a possible project, but nothing really was happening. And then funnily enough, I was looking for a used car on Craigslist and came across a, an ad that said, looking for an experienced film producer. And I was like, oh no, here it goes. So I, I followed up and it turned out it was, it was Brian Cohn who at the time had a 81 page single space treatment for the film get a job. You came to me looking for a dream job. No, I'm here to pee. Does money mean anything to you? I need a hundred dollars. Then you're gonna need a job and I'm the guy to get it for you. Sounds good, Willie. Can I pee now? Aloha! Can you do it? Can you find him another job? It's what I do. I read it and, you know, it was very funny, but it needed a lot of work. And he ended up working on a screenplay and flash forward nine or 10 months. And my wife was like, look, you're just sitting in your office writing screenplays. You should just produce this movie. It's you, you'd meet a lot of people. And so, and I, you know, at that point, Brian and I had become friends, acquaintances. And so we went for it. And for that project, we brought out a bunch of New York film crew that I'd worked with. And we ended up, you know, shooting, get a job, which, you know, was how I met Augie and, Willie, I mean, all sorts of all sorts of local characters from the islands, great performers, uh, actors, musicians. So that that sort of began, I would say, a little bit of an independent film movement here on Maui, because it was kind of the first project that had been shot here that at least went to film festivals and ended up with distribution of right. some kind. So that, you know, that was, and then we extended our stay. And then meanwhile, I was sort of building my screenwriting career through management in LA. And I ended up, you know, selling a couple of TV shows and, and it, it looked like it was more kind of viable to live here, both do, do local productions, but also continue doing my, my screenwriting work and filmmaking on the mainland and also some international projects too. That seems like the, the life to have is to be able to, to live here but still be able to work in the industry, you know, that that's still a continent away. So I, it seems like you got a pretty good setup. And I know the film industry or the film scene on Maui has increased in, in leaps and bounds, right? There's a there's a studio there. I know Branscombe has a big presence there as well, right? Yeah, yeah. and Branscombe and I have worked on probably four projects together. And he and I both really feel like, look, you know, you, you can have a viable life in entertainment mm -hmm. in Hawaii, you know? And so a lot yeah. of the people we end up hiring including and and also just have internships and sort of mentorship relationships is like their kids here who love love media are media savvy but they don't really know how to transition or see that there's a way to make a living and so we've you know worked on you know including people and making it inclusive try to try to you know realize hey you can work on these productions there's commercial shoots there's film there's you know if you get to a certain point and you get your hours you can join the union you can move to Oahu if that's what you're interested in you work on one of these shows so it's that certainly wasn't my intention starting out but it's been a really fulfilling part of the journey now after you know 12 years is sort of seeing how the local industry is is growing and certainly on the outer islands let's talk a little bit more about Aloha Surf Hotel what's the story behind the movie what what led you to the idea of writing the screenplay and shooting entirely on Maui. Yeah, I spent a fair amount of time. I live here on the North Shore, and I spent a fair amount of time at Hokipo, which is the local, you know, break for us. My kids surf. I surf sort of badly in a middle-aged man sort of way, who didn't grow up here. But you know, I love it. And 
through that, I've met a ton of really colorful local characters that were either ex-surf pros, aspiring surf pros, you know, just there's a, there's a set of really interesting characters there. And I always thought, you know, this would be putting a, an ex-surf pro at the center of a either a TV show or, or film just seemed like a, a kind of low-hanging fruit, like a good idea. There was comedic potential, dramatic potential. And so actually a friend of mine from from the mainland was visiting, John Stern, who's a who's now a very successful producer of comedic content in LA. He'd actually produced one of my feature films, my first feature film in New York. He was out here visiting with his family and, and we were just kicking around ideas and sort of came up with this premise of a down on its luck North Shore hotel that had to hire a, a local surf pro to teach obnoxious tourists how to surf. It just, you know, it seemed like it's sort of like, you know, that show, that British show, Faulty Towers, like mm -hmm. dysfunctional characters in a, in a con confined world. You know, I don't know what happened to Ty. One day he was riding the biggest waves, he was winning world championships, he was on the cover of magazines, and then he sort of disappeared. We just hired the best instructor on the island. I mean, you probably heard of him. Ty Alonzo. Gonzo Alonzo. Hey, that's my band! That's where I live! Wait! <laughs> How's your flight? Good, good. So what, you actually have a job now? Yeah, surf instructor, but you know, they got me doing everything over here. And so we we actually developed it as a as a TV show and pitched it. There was this media accelerator on the big island, GBS. And so we, you know, I ended up pitching it there as a as a half hour comedy. And we were lucky enough to get some development money to shoot a proof of concept. So we ended up shooting, you know, basically a TV pilot here on Maui and it went pretty well. And we ended up pitching around in LA and we almost set it up on one of the, the digital, new, new digital platforms at the time, but it, it didn't quite go. And then it sort of went dormant. We were busy with other projects. And then almost a year later, GVS called up, called up and said, Hey, would you consider adapting it as a feature film? Because we're about to reallocate our funds. And, you know, we thought it was a good premise and if you can get some matching investors, we'll, we'll match you halfway. So then I went out to, you know, some, some people here on Maui and just said, Hey, look, we have this opportunity. Are you guys interested? And we, you know, raised a small budget and we pulled together our team. And, and the, the big difference was we put Augie at the center of the, of the film. Cause when we shot the pilot, I'd cast in that lead role. I cast this actor from LA. Who's very funny, you know, a really good actor, but he just, when I looked at it, I, I didn't realize, I didn't believe that, you know, this is someone who spends all their time at Hokipa and grew up here in Hawaii. So that, so that was sort of a recalibration, like, no, put someone who's local that, that I'll believe and people will believe is really from Hawaii. And I've worked with Augie on Get a Job and also Juliana, you know, he's obviously very funny, but he also can play the more dramatic emotional beats. And so I thought he'd be a good person to to sort of carry the movie. I know firsthand just how funny of a guy he is. After you cast him, how much of the script was written the way that he performed it? And how much of it was just Augie being Augie? I mean, I would say probably 80% of it was on the page, probably more yeah. actually, but but yeah. but but again, it's, I mean, the script is sort of a template, right? So he, yeah. he comes in and just embodies the role. And then obviously his pigeon is, he's bringing that, you know, even though it's mm -hmm. written and I will say, like, he's a super busy guy. This was prior to his, um, right. his county council run, but he was he was thinking about it already. But he was on the radio from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. Mm -hmm. So basically, we would send hair and makeup in at like 8.30. He was doing the, the radio show live from Maui. Send in hair and makeup at 8.30, get him ready. He would step out of his where he was staying and and doing the show. And we'd be like, all right, action, you know. And he would, he, he had, you know, a lot of, lines every single day because it was it was not like a leisurely paced production schedule we were we were hitting you know 10 pages a day sometimes and so he, he worked through the he took the lines and he made them his and but there was a fair amount of depending on the characters there was some you know when he's in it with Alex Farnham or with Branscombe yeah. you know that like Branscombe Augie and Branscombe in the scene in the bathroom for example I mean I took uh, one year plumbing. Oh, guarantee you not to fix toilets, because you know what? That's right here. I'll give you another $20. You can fix this toilet. I'll give it to you on payday. 
By the way, when is payday? Next payday, I'm going to give you $20. You can handle? Well, you know about this toilet radio? Special. Elvis Presley went <laughs> right here in this oh. house. March 1966. You know how to do it? <clears throat> yeah. Help me up, bro. <laughs> that was... <laughs> I mean, some of the outtakes, we, we could hardly shoot the scene. It was so funny, yeah. just the, the stuff they were ad-libbing. So, I mean, it, it depended, you know, on, on on who was in the scene, but but he was amazing. You know, I mean, he's he's yeah. very comfortable and loving and and just made everyone feel happy, uplifted yeah. on set. It was, a, it was a good dynamic on set, probably because of his zest for life. When you're down in a surf competition, did you just paddle in or throw in the towel? No. Never owned a towel. That was filmmaker Stefan Schaefer talking with HBR's Russell Subiano. Schaefer says he's currently writing a feature film for Warner Brothers that will shoot in Europe, and he's developing several other projects set in Hawaii. For more information on his Aloha Surf Hotel Amazon Prime Watch Party this Sunday, check out the links on the conversation page of our website later today. is it for today tomorrow we've got a call-in show and next week we plan to hear from retired federal public defender out silver he has a new book out this month it's everything you wanted to know about the infamous mailbox you know the public corruption case involving honolulu's police chief louis kealoha and his deputy prosecutor wife Catherine. they are both serving time behind bars for their crimes what are your thoughts about that case call or talk back line 808-792-8217 email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.